Acts chapter 11. And let me read our passage this morning. It's verses 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Holy, and through the Holy Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Down in our basement at home, we have a uh, painted board that we keep in the basement that we call the birthday board. And whenever it's one of the kids' birthdays, we haul that board up and we put it against the wall and we stick the kid up against it and we measure them and we mark their height and their name and how old they were when they were that tall. And then and we get the tape measure out, right? And then you've got to measure like, okay, how, how tall are you this year? Oh, wow, you're four feet tall or whatever it is. And, and then, of course, you then take tape measure and you measure how much they grew from last year. Oh, you grew two inches. You believe you're three inches, right? And then sometimes you, you look at how tall they grew, you know, over like five or six years. And you know, my, my oldest son, it's, it's like he used to be a gnome and now he's a troll, you know, and like, how did this happen? He turned into this big, you know, long-limbed creature that eats everything in our house. It's really fun seeing growth in kids. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a, a board that we had at our house that could somehow show us spiritual growth? Because when you have Jesus in your life, when you're a follower of Christ, Christ is our life. Jesus is your life. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to have Christ as your life and your hope and eternal life. And, and you know, when you're alive, you grow. And, and so the Christian life is a life of growth. It, it happens. Um, and it happens on a number of levels. You know, at the most basic level, think of it maybe as level one, is personal growth. You grow as a Christian over time. Eh, don't always notice it week to week. I mean, sometimes I feel like some weeks I go backwards. <laughs> like, you know, Monday I'm following the Lord, and by Friday I'm like, what happened? And, and I've, I've gone backwards in my faith. But you can't measure it week to week. You've got to measure it year by year and, and decade by decade. And so, you know, you look back in your life and you say, wow, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, I, I was at a different place. And, boy, I still have a long ways to go, but I've grown in patience I've grown in kindness. 
I've, I've gotten more comfortable praying. I think I love Jesus more than I did back then. I'm, God is growing me, and wow, I, I see the progress, even if it is at a glacial speed sometimes, but I'm growing. But then there's another level of growth that we see. It's not just personal growth, but then there's the level of church growth. You know, churches grow. As each of us individually are are growing in the Lord and seeking Him, then that makes a church grow in depth and in maturity and in wisdom. Churches grow over time, and, and you see them shift, hopefully in a good direction, because people are seeking the Lord. Uh, they, they grow theologically. Sometimes they grow in numbers. We see that a lot in the book of Acts. You know, I think about tonight, uh, we have the baptism service at six o'clock. I don't know if you've ever been to a baptism service. Like, you've got to experience a baptism service. <laughs> you need to hear the stories of real people talking about their own faith in Christ. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's better than the Super Bowl. I know that's hard to believe. But seriously, it's amazing to hear what God is doing in real people's lives. And, uh, and you know, 30 people are joining the church. That's so exciting, right? I think this church, like maybe 70 years ago, started a couple houses down here on Main Street in someone's basement, and it was like seven, ten people in a little prayer meeting praying that God would do something new. And here we are like 60, 70 years later, whatever it is, I don't know the exact number, and now there's this church, and 30 people are joining, and God has done something. It's church growth. But this morning, I want to think with you about a third level of growth, one that we often don't think about. It's not on our radar, and yet it's so huge. And if our hearts uh, can get excited about this third level of growth, if, if we can see how we connect to this third level of growth, it can actually kind of supercharge personal growth and even church growth. And this third level of growth is, I don't know what the technical term is for it, so I'm going to call it this morning, I'm just going to give it a label, I'm going to call it gospel growth. Or you might want to call it the mission of the church growth. It's the growth of God's kingdom and God's church beyond the walls of our local church. So it's me growing, our church growing, but then God is doing something above and beyond the church and outside the walls of the church where he's bringing new people to the Lord and he's planting new churches. So there's not only the growth of addition, of like people adding to a church, but there's also the growth of multiplication, of churches being planted that are planting churches. And this is how the gospel has spread. And in fact, the book of Acts is really just the, the, the birthday board. It's the growth record of that gospel growth from the church in Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And the rest of church history is, is really the, the birthday board recording how the gospel got to Europe and then to North America and then to, to the rest of the world as it's spreading today as the gospel is continuing to multiply. And so you and I today are followers of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, because of this same gospel growth that we see here in Acts. And, and as I said, it's not something we often think about but when you do, when you get connected to this third level of the growth of God's work, it's so exciting and energizing to individuals and to churches. So let's look at this, this passage I just read, chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. And um, here we have a case study in gospel growth. What is gospel growth? What are you talking about? Well, here it is. Here's a, a case study of how it happens and, and what takes place. And I'd like to suggest that we see here three phases of this gospel growth in this passage as the church grew beyond Jerusalem and a church was established in Antioch. 
And there's three phases here, and here's the first phase. We call the first phase, it's real simple, it's evangelism. Phase one is evangelism. Phase one is people going out and telling other people about Jesus. You know, the, the first step in gospel growth, I know this is a shocker, is telling the gospel, telling other people about the Lord. Look at it there in verses 19 to 21. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So, so you have the church in Jerusalem, that's where it started, but then we know from Acts chapter 7 and 8 that there was a big persecution there. Stephen was the first martyr, and a lot of Christians were ejected from Jerusalem. They kind of ran for their lives. And as they spread north through uh, uh, the land of Israel and Syria, that area, they, they began preaching the gospel as they went. And finally, they came to Antioch. So if you think of like the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and then where it finally connects with what today would be Turkey, uh, that little intersection there, you know, it's like the cape, like the elbow, that little place where it turns is where Antioch was, right in that corner. And Antioch was a huge city. In those days, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire next to Alexandria and, of course, Rome itself. Uh, it was a very cosmopolitan city, very wealthy city, uh, a very polytheistic city. There were lots of gods and temples there. Apparently, according to uh, ancient history, it was a very immoral city. People were just kind of, you know, hey, whatever happens in Antioch stays in Antioch kind of city. Uh, it was not a, an upright, moral place to be. And these guys show up, and these Jewish people who've become Christians are speaking to other Jewish people and telling them about Jesus, but some of them cross the line and they start speaking to the Greeks. And we saw last Sunday in Acts chapter 10 that God was pushing the church now to the Gentiles. And lo and behold, God causes these Greeks to believe in Jesus, and a lot of them believe in Jesus. Wow. And so they go there and these guys just start throwing the gospel seed out, telling people about Jesus, and then people start believing and voila, Instant church, that there's suddenly believers who are gathered there. That's how gospel growth spreads. It's really that simple. There's not a lot else to it. There, there, it doesn't take fancy marketing. You know, it doesn't take slick brochures. It, it, it doesn't take um, some, you know, clever uh, spiel. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take a fog machine. You don't need laser lights or strobe lights. Gospel growth happens as regular people go and tell other people the good news of Jesus. And we just throw the seed, and if God so moves, because it's the Lord who has to save people, our job is just to tell the news, right? They told the news, and then verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and because of that, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That's all it is. It's so simple. It's us speaking the gospel. Uh, I had a chance this week uh, to share the gospel with someone. It was a, a guy I know, and, and uh, he uh, just asked me out of the blue. This is how it always seems to happen, right? People just hit you, blindside you out of the blue with some random question, and he just hit me out of the blue. He was like, hey, so in your church, do you guys do confession? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> what were you just, just out of the blue. And so I, I said, well, yes and no. I go, we, no, I mean, we don't have like, in, in the Catholic church, in the Baptist church, we don't have like a, 
a confessional you go to and talk to a priest. I said, but we believe in confession. We, we believe that you should confess directly to the Lord because, because we have Jesus as our high priest, we can all go straight to the Lord. And I said, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, in, in the community of the church, we'll sometimes confess sin to each other because that's part of, of that is being open with each other. I said, we're, you know, we're a church family and so we want to have open lives. And when we, when we sin, we want to go to some brothers and sisters we trust and and confess sin and, and pray for each other so that we could be strengthened. So I said, there's, there's confession in, in the church community too. And, he, and then he was like, oh, that's interesting. And then he started talking about a time he, he had gone to a confessional and confessed some things and how good it made him feel to get it off his chest. And I said, yeah, you know, it's great to get things off your chest. I said, but then there's something else you need though. You actually need to be forgiven. I said, it's great, you know, getting something off your chest is great, but what about the guilt of what you've done? You know, if I go and I rob a bank... And then I feel really guilty that I robbed a bank. And then I pull you aside and I confess to you that I robbed a bank. Then I feel great that I confess to you that I robbed a bank. Well, that's good, but there's still a problem. I've robbed a bank. <laughs> and there's justice that has to be answered. There is a crime that's been committed. And I may feel better, but I'm still guilty. And I said, you know, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to actually take away our guilt so that we don't have to face the punishment. He, he died on the cross for that. And, and this guy goes, yeah. He goes, that makes sense. He, he said, you know, I heard, I, I think I heard Billy Graham's son say once that in a lot of religions, to get to heaven, you've got to die for God. But in Christianity, to get to heaven, God died for you. And I was like, you got it, you know? And I said, that, that's how you, I said, you got to put your faith in Jesus. He's like, oh, okay. And then the conversation went on. It was like two minutes, right? That's the gospel comes out of nowhere. You've got to be ready. It wasn't some brochure I gave him. It's just sharing our lives, talking about the gospel. And by God's grace, I'm praying that, that he would know the Lord if he doesn't already. Just praying that God would be at work in his life. This is how it spreads. And it's super simple. Isn't it cool to think that any of us could then, therefore, be the agents of gospel growth? Any of us can be the agents of gospel growth. It just takes that willingness and that opportunity to open our mouths, to, uh, to invite someone to read the Bible one-on-one, to, uh, to get some people together and start speaking the gospel. And could you think that that might be what God would use even to start a new church in your community? I don't know, where do you live? You live in Abington, you live in Rockland, Cohasset, you know, Duxbury, Hanover, Quincy, wherever you live, God could start a new church in your town. And uh, it, it just starts with a Bible study. You, you could be like the, the Kellys in our church who started a Bible study and they're, uh, they're in a retirement community and so they just put up flyers or whatever, got the news out that they're going to have a Bible study in the community room and people have started coming. And there's some people there who are retirement age who've like never read the Bible in their lives. And for the first time, they're learning about the Lord. Or, or you could be like the Jamesons up in Quincy, and they just got some friends together, and they said, we're going to read the Bible with some friends of ours who aren't Christians, and these friends have said yes, and they're reading the Bible. And who knows? Maybe God would start a church that way. You're like, oh, that's crazy. Is it? I mean, how many churches, if you were to go to that local church and read the church's history and find out how did the church start, how many percentage of churches started because a small little group of people, Christians or whatever, started a prayer service, started a Bible study, had a vision for reaching their area, and then they met, and then they got some more people, and the people got 
came to faith in Jesus, and then the thing grew, and then it eventually got established as a church. I mean, that's so often the story of how churches start. That's the story of gospel growth. It's the story here. You go, oh, I couldn't do that. I mean, these guys were, they're awesome Christians back then. You know, I mean, well, I don't know. Look who did it. Verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Okay, Bible trivia quiz. What were the names of the men who did this? Anyone know? Neither do I. Bible doesn't say. We don't know who they were. The apostles didn't start the church in Antioch. The seven, as far as we know, didn't start the church in Antioch. It, it was like, well, some guys from uh, Cyprus. Who started this church? I don't know. Some guys from Cyrene. It really doesn't matter. They're just regular Christians who did this. That's how the gospel has spread, is people speaking the gospel, believing that God could do something, and God does something, and God starts a new work in a place. It could totally happen. It has happened. It is happening. It will continue to happen, and we could be God's agents in that. You know, we we have missionaries in our church that we support. We give financial support to missionaries, and they go to other countries, and and sometimes we as a church kind of put those missionaries up on a pedestal. They become like kind of rock stars. The missionaries are almost like the, the Protestant version of saints, you know, and we have our own version of that, and like, oh, the missionaries, and eh, got to be careful with that. I mean, on the one hand, yes, I think we should really esteem our missionaries and love them and be inspired by their sacrifice, but on the other hand, you've got to be careful that you don't start thinking that there's some different class of Christian who are, you know, they've had some spiritual superpower that we don't have. Like, what are missionaries doing in other countries? Well, they're sharing the gospel, getting groups of people together, trying to start churches, trying to build up established churches and and take them further, as we'll see in phase two of gospel growth. In other words, what missionaries do in other countries is just what we're doing here. They're just doing it in another culture. And they may have some unique challenges, like different language, different cultural challenges. Maybe they're, they're facing poverty in a way that we aren't, and so they've got to figure out how to minister in that circumstance. But bottom line, it's the same activity. Even that term missions is, is a little like, hmm, where does that come from? Maybe we should just talk about the mission. There's just one mission. And they're doing it in Papua New Guinea and Kenya, and we're doing it in Quincy. And it's the same mission. It's sharing the gospel, praying that God would bring people to become disciples of Jesus by his power, not ours, building those people up as we'll see and multiplying. That's what it's always been. What's really cool is when you get a vision for gospel growth, it can kind of like spice up and energize your own personal growth because otherwise it's easy to kind of be just a, a pew potato, you know? Eh, go to church, sit in the pew. Just take it in. Good sermon today. B plus, A minus. Eh, not bad. What's on TV tonight? Ah, Pats are next week. Oh, I heard a big storm's coming. Rinse, repeat, go around. You know, like God wants us to be his agents in the world. This is how the gospel grows, is us and all those little efforts and conversations that we have. But when you start seeing that, well, then, then it, you stop from being kind of like just a passive consumer of, of the gospel, and you start becoming an active infector and distributor of the gospel. And you start saying, God's, God's going to use you. 
And God, that's how God works. That's what we see here in this passage. But then that leads to phase two. So phase one is evangelism. People gossiping the gospel of Jesus, sharing it with the people in their community, and God works. In this case, it was a dramatic work of God. A large number of people believed. And so then that leads to phase two of gospel growth, which is establishing the work. So evangelism happens in a new church's birth. There's believers there who are gathering. Phase two then is you've got to establish and build up that work. And that's what you see in verses 22 to 26, the, the establishing, the, the, the strengthening of that work. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I want to point out two things, two observations about the establishing phase of this gospel growth. Number one is that the church is established and built and strengthened and deepened through studying God's Word. That, that's how you deepen the work. That's how you start the work too, right? You go someplace and you tell people the, the Word. You tell them about Jesus, tell them the gospel, tell, read the Bible with them, and then people come to faith. What do you do when they come to faith? Well, you, you keep feeding on the Word of God. and You keep studying God's Word. And so here comes Barnabas, and he sees that there's Christians there, and he wants to keep them going. So what does he do to help keep them going? He grabs Saul, and those two guys... They just lean into teaching, and they're trying to teach these Christians how to grow. You know, all all these Antioch people, Antioch Gentiles, who their whole lives have been worshiping Zeus and Diana and Apollos and other gods, and their whole lives have been engaged in sexual immorality and drunkenness and wildness and greed and all the, the things that the Gentile world did and didn't think twice about it. And now he's teaching them how to worship God, how to live a holy life how to love their neighbors. There's teaching that has to take place. There's individuals growing. The church is growing during this establishing phase of the work. Or to think about it another way, Paul and Barnabas are doing what Jesus commanded us to do when he gave us his final words of commission. Um, I want to show you those words that Jesus gave us when he told us what we should be doing until he comes back. Put a bookmark here in Acts and turn back just a few pages to a was probably for some of us a familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 28. It's on page 989. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel about Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, at the very end, this is, these are the final words of Jesus, famous last words. The final words of Jesus that he gives to his disciples before he goes back to heaven. You look at Matthew 28, 18. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, here's our marching orders, go. And that's what they did. They went to Antioch. Go, make disciples of all nations. They, did, they started to do that. They're preaching to the Gentiles, to the nations, and they're making disciples. People are turning to the Lord and believing. And then what? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not just a private faith. It's a public commitment to a new 
group called the church. You, you know, remember, it was in Antioch they were first called Christians, where, where the people of Antioch were like, who are these, what's this new group? They're not Jewish, and they're not worshiping our gods. They're not Gentiles anymore. Who are they? Oh, they're the Christians. They're the, the Christians. They're the Christ followers. That's who they are, the Christians. Okay, well, how do we know? Well, they got baptized, and they're part of that group, and they meet every week. And what are they doing over there? So, so there's this new group that's gathered that's not just a private faith in Jesus, but there's also a public church that's assembling that people can see and identify. And you, and you enter that through baptism. That's your sign of joining into this new fellowship. And then what's the last thing? Verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're teaching. And so this is missions, soup to nuts. It's evangelizing, going, making disciples, baptizing, congregating them together, teaching them, growing them up, rinse, repeat, (laughs) multiply. That's gospel growth. And that's what they were doing in Antioch just carrying out the Great Commission in its wonderful simplicity. But another thing, going back to Acts 11, here's the second thing I want to point out about establishing work. So there's evangelism, and then there's establishing what's been evangelized, and that includes the Word of God. But the other thing that I think is really neat in verses 22 to 26 is to see how the church in Jerusalem partnered in this work. That, to me, is one of my favorite things here. Verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You know, they they didn't hear of it and say, their their reaction wasn't like, what? You started what? You didn't have our permission to do that. Hey, listen, we have a a plan here, and uh, that's not in the plan. You you didn't get permission from the apostles here before you started preaching the gospel. Do, Do you have franchise rights to the church? You know, it wasn't anything like, control and, and whatever. I mean, certainly there's accountability and, and mutual accountability, but they send Barnabas, and Barnabas goes to strengthen the work. So there's this gospel growth mindset that's been developing in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is growing in its theology. It's learning that God wants to reach the Gentiles too, and they showed that to Peter. And now as the church in Jerusalem is growing in its theology, it sees that Gentiles are coming to faith in Antioch. And so it says, we're not just about Jerusalem, we're about the gospel growth. And so they send off Barnabas, which I think was a significant investment because it seems like Barnabas was a pretty good dude. Good man, full of the Holy Spirit. It probably set the church in Jerusalem back a little bit to lose Barnabas. You know, this, this was one of their good guys. But, but that happens when you're committed to gospel growth. You actually lose people. And it's okay. Because it's about the gospel. We, we, we send people out. And, um, you know, that's hard sometimes. But, but we need to let people go for the sake of the gospel. That, that's what it's all about. Look, someday we're going to be in eternal life together. There's going to be one church in heaven not going to be any more denominations. It's just going to be all God's people in one big church service, all together at the banquet of the Lamb. It's going to be like a, the ultimate Labor Day picnic with the best food and all of us all together as a church, worshiping Jesus. You'll have all eternity to fellowship and hang out. So it's okay to let some people go now because that's what we're here for. This, is, this phase of it is the spread of the gospel. It's exciting. We should celebrate 
that when we lose people for the gospel. Isn't it a weird thought that a church committed to gospel growth might actually, at certain seasons, shrink? That that might be a sign of a growing church is numeric shrinkage because we're sending people? Like, like if, if 100 people from our church went and planted a church in Quincy or Braintree or something, we, we would say, well, our church isn't growing. Well, we lost 100 people, but it's growing. The gospel is growing. That, that's the thing. So it's kind of weird, isn't it? But it's, it's exciting. Uh, Seth was saying earlier that um, we just heard this uh, about a couple weeks ago that Blaine, our intern, one of our interns, is uh, going to go to Dubai and uh, work with a the church there. He's been accepted there to be there for a couple of years and then plant a church in Dubai. And I'm really excited for him. I mean, that's gospel growth, right? We hear about an amazing work God's doing in the Middle East, hard to reach place. Dubai is a strategic point where churches are being planted. We're sending a guy to help plant churches to be another foothold in the Middle East. But I'm going to be real honest with you. A little candid pastor moment here. There's a little greedy part of me that doesn't want to let Blaine go. Right? There's a little part of me. I'll be honest. Yeah, because he's awesome. Like, you know, I'm like, could I use Blaine here? <laughs> yes, I could. I have a lot of things I could use Blaine here for. There's a part of me that would love to put Blaine to work in South Shore Baptist and in our area. But you've got to send Barnabas out. That's the nature of this work. And so when you're committed to gospel growth, you've got you to let it go. And, and you've got to let God work. And the cool thing is, when you let it go as part of gospel growth, is that God continues to fill in. Right? And so... He brings what you need for the work. When you're committed to his work, he's going to provide what you need. And so you're not losing something. You're just investing it differently, and God brings something else into your life. And, uh, you, you know, we're called to be conduits for his grace. But to be a conduit, you know, we like the, the, the things coming in part of the conduit. We don't always like the things going out part of the conduit. But for it to work, you've got to have flow of his grace through us. That's exciting. And this is the mindset of a gospel growth church. And so our, our church, I just pray that we keep that mindset. I, I'll tell you what, the day a church loses a vision for gospel growth is the day a church begins to die. That's the beginning. And you may not even say it. I mean, everything may look fine. But the day the heart shuts down and is only interested in the internal functioning, which is important too, I'm not anti that. But, but when you lose that third level, and you're only focused on one, levels one or two, and a slow decay begins to happen. And so part of life and health as a church is to remember the growth of the gospel, even as we work. You know, uh, we're praying for an executive pastor to come to, to help with our sort of church life and organization, and, and that's exciting. But, you know, if all an executive pastor is here to do is just help the machine work better, that's bad. We need someone to help us work better as a church together for the sake of the mission, not just so that we can have a better humming machine. Um, so we've got to keep the gospel growth in front of us. The gospel growth, it invigorates us personally and invigorates our church in exciting ways. We need to keep praying for other churches. We need to be about church planting. I'm so excited our missions committee has added a a piece to their missions budget to to support some local church plants around here. 
That's like the, the bullseye of gospel, of missions is church planting. There's other things we do too, but that's the bullseye. And so to keep encouraging that is super exciting. I just want to applaud those efforts. Okay, finally, third phase. Look at verses 27 to 30 just real quick. Verses 27 to 30, you have phase three of gospel growth, which is what we might call engaging. So you have evangelism, then you have establishing the church, and then the final phase is when that newly established church itself begins to engage in the work. And there's the multiplication. So that that church is not just receiving and being built up, but now that church is putting its shoulder to the plow. It's putting its hand to the tools. And there, that church now is, is contributing. Uh, there's, a, there's a financial commitment back and forth between these churches. Here in verses 27 to 30, you get this interesting story of uh, a prophet named Agabus who predicts a famine during the reign of Claudius. We know from world history as well, that during Claudius's reign, Claudius was Caesar from 41 to 54 AD, and we know from history that there were at least four major famines during his, his reign as Caesar. He, he, had, he had a lot of kind of uh, natural disasters he had to contend with. It sort of marked his reign as Caesar, and, uh, and Agabus predicts it. And so the church in Antioch now is collecting funds to support the church back in Jerusalem. So there's this wonderful reciprocity taking place between churches. Isn't that crazy, though? They did a big fund drive based upon a prophecy. That's a lot of faith. Those people are really listening to the Holy Spirit. They did a fund drive based upon a prophecy. Wow. Anyway, they're helping the church in Jerusalem. There's reciprocity. They're caring for each other. Churches help each other out across lines and, and, and support each other and try to strengthen each other in different ways as, as churches come to know each other. Of course, you, you can't support every church, and every church can't know every church, especially nowadays. There's so many, but you can know some. You can know a few. And we as a church can be helping and supporting a few other churches and, and be connected to them. It's exciting when that happens. And not only that, it's not just that they help the church in Jerusalem financially, but the church in Antioch will then become the springboard for the gospel into the heart of the Greco-Roman Empire, into Greece and into Italy, right? Look at chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Get this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me the work, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, so now Paul and Barnabas are there in Antioch, and they're being sent out into Asia Minor, into Turkey, and into Greece, and into Rome. The gospel is now going to spread. So, so now, finally, the church in Antioch has taken on the role of the church in Jerusalem. They're sending for the work of the gospel. Now the whole cycle is complete. A group has been evangelized. A church has been established, and now that established church is starting to engage by sending out people. They now have a vision for gospel growth. You think about that. Can you imagine how hard it would have been for the Antioch church to send out Paul and Barnabas? Because Paul and Barnabas were like their senior pastor and associate pastor. You know, who built up that church? Paul and Barnabas. And now it's like, all right, uh, God says that your senior pastor and your associate pastor, your senior pastor and your executive pastor, two key teachers in the church, whoever, they need to go to do some other things now. What? 
Lord, I mean, I know you're going to take some people. You can't take those people. We'll collapse without them. No, 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 no. Gospel growth. And if the Holy Spirit says go, they go. If God leads them, they go. And so they, they, they set them loose. Wow. The church in Antioch has a vision for gospel growth. And so now we don't just have addition, we have multiplication. Evangelize, establish, engage, rinse, repeat, and thus the gospel has made it to the South Shore of Boston down through the centuries. That's how it grows and that's how it works. Really exciting. And God can do it here. Could you believe that, that God could use us even to see new works even here on the South Shore? There's, there's so much room here on the South Shore. That's what's so cool about ministering here in New England. You know, you say, well, well if we did plant a church in South Shore of Boston, like, where would we plant it? You know, I don't know. Hingham? <laughs> Do you think we've reached Hingham at South Shore Baptist Church? <clears throat> there's 20,000 people in this town. How many people come to our church on Sunday morning? We haven't even made a dent in Hingham. We could plant like eight South Shore Baptist churches in Hingham and barely make a dent, people. <laughs> That's what's so great. Where should we plant a church in the South Shore? Okay, here's how we're going to figure it out. Put a map up on the wall of the South Shore, put on a blindfold, throw a dart, take off the blindfold, and wherever the dart hit is a great place to plant a church. That's the great place thing, unless it lands like in the ocean, then you got to throw again. But you get the point. You got to keep throwing until you hit a town. Any town, anywhere. Hull has zero Bible teaching evangelical churches. What? You know, unless I'm unaware of one that's teaching the Bible every week and trying to get people to faith in Christ. I mean, where is it happening? And so there's so much room, there's so much opportunity. So just go bananas. Everything's a good option. We live in a target-rich environment, truly. So what would it look like then for one of us, for each of us in our personal lives this week, to lean into this third level of growth? What, what would it look like for you or for me to start connecting with this third level of growth? Yes, personal growth, that's got to always be there. That's the foundation Church growth, yes, let's keep praying for God to be at work in our church. Let's be a part of the work of our church. But, but what about that next phase? What would that look like for you? Maybe it would just be you starting to pray for some people you know who don't know the Lord. Maybe it's you praying for your town, praying that God would start a new church in your town. Maybe it would be, um, it, maybe that's you sharing the gospel with some people. Maybe you want to start, a, you're like, you know, I actually got like three people I know who might read the Bible with me. And start reading the Bible with some people you know who don't know the Lord and just trying to see what God might do. Maybe it's your growth group that's all from the same town, starting to pray and dream about being more than just a Bible study, but being the, the seed that would start something else. Maybe you know of another church. And, and, and you've got friends and connections there, and you know the pastor of another church, and they have a need there, and, and you think, like, boy, I, I know I could help out in that church, but I'm at South Shore Baptist. Well, like, what if you took a sabbatical from South Shore Baptist for two years, like Paul and Barnabas did, and just say, hey, just so you know, Jeremy, I, I still want to be a member here, but for, like, the next year and a half, I'm just going to go over to that church, and I'm going to help them with, you know, their nursery, or they need really help with this or that, and then I want to, you know, and so we just kind of, like, lent people out like the Jerusalem church, or sent them away. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? 
What if that's what God's calling you to do? Maybe, maybe God's blessed you with some finances, and you're like, I, I, I could help support a church planter. I could help, you know, do, do we want to ever plant a church out of here? Maybe a group of you here in our church have a heart for planting another church out of our church. And like North River Community Church. Some of you know North River Community Church in Pembroke? You know how that started. Some people at South Shore Baptist went to the elders and said, we feel like we want to plant a church. And the elders gave them their blessing and they went and did it and now it's a church. So like that's, that's gospel growth. And we can all be a part of it. What would it look like for us? Or maybe the first step for you in gospel growth is the first step that everyone has to take, which is to believe the gospel yourself. That's step one. Have you turned your life over to Jesus? Have you not only come to a place that you see that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and maybe you've even confessed it, but where you've put your faith in Jesus to have your sins washed away and forgiven so that justice might be satisfied on the cross, so that you could be acquitted and forgiven before God? Have you, as it says back in Acts 11, turned to the Lord and believed in him? That's the first step. And may we all be sure we've taken that first step. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, lift up our eyes. Show us what you're doing. Oh, God, keep working in our lives personally. Oh, we all need to keep growing. And, Lord, keep working in this church. We just pray for more growth and more addition and more life in our church here at Sasha Baptist. Oh, but God, lift our eyes to see the fields white for the harvest, as you described it, Jesus. Help us to see the needs around us. Help us to believe that your power is enough and your gospel is enough even when delivered by faulty messengers like us. Oh God, give us a vision. Give us a gospel vision for the region. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give ideas and dreams to people in this church and that people might start venturing out and taking a few risks and being a little more bold than they normally would be. Just taking little steps of faith, God. And may you continue to bring the good news of Jesus Lord Jesus, you've saved our lives. And there are so many people around us who need their lives saved. Oh God, I pray that that would stir us to care and and that we would want to see others' lives saved for eternity. So Lord, use us. Open up the Dead Sea and let it flow south. Let the, the water not only flow in, but flow out. Oh God, we pray this for our church in Christ's name.